into this morning. Who in here, by a show of hands, I'm going to ask you for participation this morning. Who in here this morning wants to be happy? I want to be happy. I'm afraid sometimes, though, that um, happiness is the God of the age. I've talked with a lot of people over the course of years. I've talked to a lot of couples. And you know what most people say before they leave a marriage? Well, God would want me to be happy. Hmm. Okay. I hear people all the time making major decisions based on what's going to make them happy. And if... If y'all were around for the Despicable Me time, Pharrell Williams had that song and they put it on repeat for 24 hours of happy, right? Like a room without a roof. I don't know what that means. Anyway, happy. I'll leave that there. I think there's two problems with happiness. I think we pursue it at all costs, and I don't think we really know what it means. This morning, as we look at this just unfathomable passage today, we're going to get the true definition of happiness. And I heard a story this week that Alistair Begg told, and I, I verified it on Wikipedia so we know it's true. And I'll, I want to kind of open us this morning with this story. He had it all. He had inherited 75% of a multi-million dollar estate when at the age of 18 his father passed away. After dropping out of college to pursue his own interests in this newfound wealth, he pursued entertainment investments, buying part of RKO Pictures and then becoming very active in the film industry, hobnobbing with the stars of the day. He also was pursuing real estate, hospitality, manufacturing, and another passion, aviation. His name was Howard Hughes. In 1938, he set a world record for the fastest flight around the world, just short of four days to complete. He invented airplanes, he dated movie stars, and he became more wealthy than his wildest dreams could have guessed. But, I'm sorry, not but, by all outward appearances, Howard Hughes was living the dream. Howard Hughes was happy. But the outside didn't tell the true tale. At one point, he survived a near-fatal plane crash, but after that, he lived in constant pain. He showed multiple symptoms of obsessive-compulsive disorder. He had sensory issues that made even his clothing painful, and he once spent over four months naked in his darkened private screening room eating chocolate bars and chicken and drinking milk. Sources say that in that time period, he was constantly stacking and restacking his Kleenex boxes and his chocolate bars, and he was leaving notes to his aides 
to not speak to him, but rather to nod for yes and shake their head for no to his questions that had come scrawled on pieces of paper written by his shaky hand that was neither clean nor manicured. He did not bathe nor care for himself in that time, and when he finally came out four months later, he was by all means a mess. He would later die after wasting away to almost 90 pounds in his six-foot-four-inch frame. And he was basically unrecognizable with unkempt hair, unkempt nails, and a beard that was unkempt as well. The FBI had to resort to fingerprints to identify his corpse due to his physical appearance in such a state. But he had it all. He had everything. By all means, he should have been happy. Right? Who could ask for more? He had wealth. He had power. He had influence. He had connections. Everybody knew his name. And he was surely not happy. And his story is just one of so many of those whose outer appearance and position in life should have led them to happiness and fulfillment, but who died destitute or even take their own lives because they are miserable. So what does it mean then? What does it take to truly be happy? To truly be fulfilled and living up to the full potential that our Creator built into us. Well, the good news is we can know, and we can know authoritatively from the Creator Himself, from the King Himself. Jesus tells us in the opening statements of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verses 5 through 12, which we call the Beatitudes. He tells us what true happiness really is. And it's probably not what we would think when we first think of happiness. So if you would stand, and we're going to read this marvelous passage. And all of the Bible is marvelous, and some things are just a little more impressive than others. This is one of those things. Stand in awe as you hear the very words of God. Seeing the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed or blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. God, some things are far beyond the scope of our ability to understand, receive, and live out. And these, these verses are surely among those things. God, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would convict and shape and conform us to the image of Christ this morning. I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would convict the sinner, raise the dead, bring salvation, 
to those who know you and those who don't know you. Help us, God, by the power of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've said through our beginning trek through Matthew that Matthew is occupied with one major concern. He wants to communicate to us through his gospel that Jesus Christ is the King of the Jews. Jesus is the one who would fill David's eternal throne and reign upon that throne forever. Jesus is the promised Messiah. That is Matthew's main purpose in writing this account of Jesus' life. When we looked at the overview of Matthew, we said that there are five major discourses that, uh, that Jesus gives and that Matthew records. This is the first of those five major discourses. And this is just a big, long passage where it's just Jesus talking. Okay, and he's teaching something very important. And there's two main things that we're going to see this morning uh, out of this passage. We're going to see what it means to be blessed or blessed. And we're going to see a whole lot about the kingdom of heaven. And we said that Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven because where other people would say the kingdom of God, Matthew wrote to primarily a Jewish audience, and they wouldn't even say the name of God. So Matthew refers to the kingdom of heaven. Are they interchangeable, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God? Probably. Are there some differences? Maybe. Um, but we're going to see a whole lot about blessedness and the kingdom of heaven today. So I want to I want to explore those two themes before we get into the verse-by-verse stuff here, because it sets the table for everything. First is the word blessed. Okay, the the phrase beatitudes. These these passages, these verses are called the beatitudes, and that's because the Latin word for blessed is beatus, or I could spell it or try to say it more fancy, but um, beatitude comes from beatus, which is the Latin word for blessed. Now, what does blessed mean? Simply, it means happy. If, you're going to, if you want a one-word definition for blessed or blessed in this passage, it's happy. Now, let's expand on that a little bit, though, because it's not enough. Happy's not enough because of the idea that we have of happy. It's not because happy's not true. It's because our view and our definition of happy is not adequate. Because our happiness depends on happenings, happenstance. Our external situation makes us happy, Right? Well, that's not, that's not good enough. Here, the word in the Greek is makarios, M-A-K-A-R-I-O-S. And it does mean happy. It also means highly favored. You ever heard, heard, have you ever heard anybody say they're blessed and highly favored? But they're saying, like, I'm happy and happy. That's kind of what they're saying. And what's important is that this is not according to happenstance. This is an inward state of heart and mind. It's not an external situation. John Stott says it this way. He says, happy is inadequate. Quote, Nevertheless, it is seriously misleading to render Makarios happy, for happiness is a subjective state, whereas Jesus is making an objective judgment about these people. Note that. That's very important. I'm going to read that again. Happiness is a subjective state, whereas Jesus is making an objective judgment about these people. Stott goes on to say, He's declaring not what they may feel like happy, 
but what God thinks of them and what on that account they are, they are blessed. Now, do, do you get that? Because that, that's a big, big point here that, that sets the tone for everything we're going to look at. We're not talking about a subjective state of happiness. So you've got subjective and objective. If you don't know the difference there, subjective is personal truth. Okay, You may say it's hot in here. I may say it's cold in here. Who's right? Yes, we're both right because you feel hot, I feel cold. That's subjective truth. Objective truth is that that thermostat says it's 67. Now, whether you consider that hot or cold is subjective, but that objective truth does not change. Okay? Are you with me? So, happiness is a subjective state. It's how you feel. But what is happening here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is proclaiming over these people what God thinks of them, what God considers them which is an objective truth, which cannot be changed. Again, that is really big as we move forward here. Please understand, to be truly happy is to understand how God sees you. If you're His. If you're not His, you're not truly happy. Because He sees you as His enemy. And His wrath abides on you. So, Jesus is proclaiming over them what God thinks of them... And what, and what on that account they are, they are blessed. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way of blessedness. This and this alone is the type of person who is truly happy, who is really blessed. This is the sort of person who is to be congratulated. Uh, there's a lady that works up at the, the counseling office. She just got named West Virginia's top soccer coach of the year. She's to be congratulated because she accomplished something. Here, we are to be congratulated because we've been given something. Okay? The Amplified Bible says it this way. Anybody familiar with the Amplified Bible? You need to check it out. Okay? Listen, this is, how, this is what the Amplified Bible says. It says, blessed, and then in parentheses it says, happy to be envied and spiritual, spiritually prosperous with life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation regardless of their outward condition. Let me read that again. Blessed means happy to be envied and spiritually prosperous with life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation regardless of their outward condition. So let me say it again. This is not based on the outward circumstances. It's not even really based on your feelings. It's based on God's judgment pronounced on you as His, as having received the gift of His favor and His salvation. And ultimately, if you look all through the Old Testament and through the New Testament, over and over and over, somebody else is called blessed. It's God. God is the blessed forever. You look through the Psalms, blessed be God, blessed be God, blessed be God. So to be blessed also means, listen, that we share the very nature of God. Wow. That would blow my hair back if I had any. But I don't, so it doesn't. So that is blessed, blessed, however you want to say it. The second big picture theme here is the kingdom of heaven. We sang about it this morning, right? Build your kingdom here. Now, 
The Jews, we've talked about this a lot, the Jews were looking for God to establish His kingdom on the earth. They believed that as His chosen people, that His kingdom would be with and for them. We saw this over and over as we went through the Old Testament, as we went through the intertestamental period, that the Jews were looking for the promised kingdom, the promised kingdom that David had been promised back in the Davidic covenant and the kingdom that Daniel had prophesied about when he talked about the Ancient of Days and he would be given a kingdom and his rule would be forever and ever and ever. And the Jews were going, yes and amen, yes and amen. That's our God, that's our king, we're his people and he's going to establish his people and it's going to be great for us. The Jews had been under foreign rule at this point in the New Testament when Jesus is speaking for 600 plus years except for the freedom that they had won during the Maccabean Revolt which was for a little piece of time there but the Romans come in and crush that and now they're under Roman rule. And they want nothing more than for God to come and throw off the Roman oppression and set up His kingdom because He's going to set His kingdom up in Jerusalem. And He's going to set His kingdom up with His people and it's going to extend to the whole earth. So this is what they're looking for. This is the Messiah that's coming that's going to make all things right. And right means my outward situation is going to get better. I'm not going to be under foreign rule anymore. I'm going to be under the rule of the perfect king that God's sending who's going to rule forever. And we're going to be His people and we're going to expand this kingdom all over the earth and everything's going to be great. And we're going to be happy. That's going to be awesome, y'all. And the Messiah, the coming Messiah would be the one who would make this happen. So John shows up, John the Baptist, and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the Jews are going, Yes! Yeah, the the stage is set. This makes perfect sense. The stage is set. He's coming. And then Jesus shows up. And John has said, That's him. That's the Messiah. He's the one that, I, that, that, that I've been talking about. He's the one that we've been waiting for. And he's walking through and he's healing people. And they're going, yeah, yeah, this makes sense. And he's teaching as one who has authority. And he's preaching in the synagogues and he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. And the Jews are going, yes! And now, here in the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus begins to expound on the kingdom. Which really must have added fuel to the fire of the anticipation of this Roman crushing kingdom that's coming. But Jesus paints a different picture of the kingdom. Jesus starts talking about poverty and mourning and meekness. And they're going, no, 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 no. No, 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 that's not going to make me happy. And Jesus keeps talking. And I'll say this, they want somebody to come in and crush the Romans, and I promise you, Jesus was much harder on the Jews than He was the Romans. Jesus just called Herod an old fox. He's like, tell that old fox, today and tomorrow I do my thing, and then I go to Jerusalem. because Jesus didn't come to proclaim freedom from an oppressive government. Jesus didn't come to overthrow the Roman regime. But He did come to set up His kingdom. But instead of a governmental or a military overthrow, Jesus says, I'm coming after your heart. 
I'm coming after your innermost desires and longings and your wants and your wishes. I'm not going to overthrow the government. I don't have a military, but I am the king. And I'm setting up a kingdom made, of, made up of poor, mourning, meek, hungry, thirsty, merciful, pure, peacemaking, persecuted individuals. To which they must have said, What? Not our king. Not my king. Not my happiness. But that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Now, there are some misunderstandings, some misinterpretations, I believe, of what this kingdom is all about. Some people say that this kingdom that Jesus is talking about here is all in the future. And that the kingdom that He's talking about is all about a forthcoming establishment. And He's just given us a foretaste now so we can know what it's going to be like. But here's the thing. When Jesus showed up, He was the King. And when He's walking around, He said things like, the kingdom of heaven is in your midst. And He told His disciples later in the Sermon on the Mount to pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come and thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. So He's inaugurating something. Okay? This kingdom is not just a future out there somewhere it's going to happen. There is a future fulfillment that is final, but we live in a paradigm today, and Jesus started it in His day, of an already but not yet kingdom. Is Jesus king of the universe? Yes. Yes. Okay, good answer. That's the right answer. Do we see all things subjected to His rule right now? No, we don't. But is Jesus king? It's an already but not yet paradigm. We see the first fruits now, and they saw it in Jesus' day, and we're seeing it today. And we, we will reap the full harvest later. So Jesus established this kingdom, and when He comes and sets all things right, it will be the final fulfillment of that kingdom. But if that, this kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming is just in the future, let's just tear these pages out of our Bible and throw them away because we don't need them. This is about now. It was about now when Jesus said it. It's about now when we read it. And there is a coming fulfillment. But what Jesus is proclaiming here, blessed are those, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people persecute you for yours is the kingdom of heaven. So there's a present possession and a future fulfillment. It is both. It is already but not yet. Now, some have said that if we live this sermon out perfectly, we'll usher in the kingdom as society gets better and better. This was prevalent in the early 1900s because things were rip-roaring and everything was going good. And then all of a sudden they had a world war. And people were going, hmm, maybe things aren't getting better. And then they had another world war. And they're going, okay, no, we're not getting any better. We're getting worse. But they were thinking that things were just going to crescendo up into this utopia and everything was going to be great. And when everything was perfect and right, then Jesus would come and set up His kingdom on the earth. And they were wrong. So this is not just about doing this now so that we can welcome Jesus in here someday. No, Paul says later that things will wax from bad to worse. And then Jesus will come and set up His kingdom. 
So we're not getting better and better, and Jesus didn't tell us to get better and better so that He can come in this. Some people have used this sermon and to talk about this kingdom to peddle a social justice gospel, telling us to adhere to this sermon primarily, caring for the physical needs of others, and just turn your other cheek, and just continually defer to the needs and to the wants of others. Others have spiritualized it to a realm of, well, it just means something more spiritual that we can understand in our human minds which makes it full of high ideals but nothing practical. And I think all of these miss the mark. Jesus is king and He is reigning in our lives and one day He will physically rule the earth and the universe. But there's a present tense to this message. There's a present tense to this kingdom. And this present tense only reinforces and solidifies the nowness of the kingdom. We do not have to wait until the king returns in bodily form to know the reality of this kingdom. That's what I want you to hear more than anything. We don't have to wait to see Jesus face to face to live and walk in this kingdom today, which makes this passage today very important so we can know what this kingdom looks like. So we've got blessedness and we've got the kingdom of heaven. Now, we're going to dive into the text. We're going to start in verse 5. And what I want you to note as we move through here is there's a progression to these Beatitudes. Okay? Jesus never spoke haphazardly. Jesus spoke on purpose, and there's a progression to these things. And the first one, note what the first one is. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, now listen, get this straight too. That 400 years of silence between Malachi and Jesus' time, 400 plus, And Malachi had ended his booming pronouncement of woe saying there's going to be utter destruction, but I'm going to send somebody who will prepare the way before my servant who will turn the hearts of the children of the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children, lest I come and smite the land with a, what was the word? Curse. And what's the first word that comes out of Jesus' mouth? in this first sermon that, he, that we have recorded, preached in the book of Matthew. Not curse. Blessing. So after 400 plus years of silence, fearing a curse, Jesus shows up proclaiming the kingdom and He says, Blessed! He'd already preached repentance. And he'd already started, John had done the work and Jesus had done the work to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and fathers to their children so that the curse wasn't coming, but there comes a blessing. But it's not the blessing that they were looking for. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Of heaven. Now, if you want to hear this booming pronouncement from the king who's going to establish his kingdom, what was it that Bill Clinton said and that our current day president, can you just say? It's the economy, stupid! Jobs, wealth, the stock market, that's a sign of a good, strong kingdom. A good, strong nation. It's about the economy. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor. The word poor is tokos. P-T-O-C-H-O-S. And it literally means a crouching beggar. 
And these crouching beggars hid in the shadows and covered everything except their outstretched hands which they hoped to receive something from someone else. These crouching beggars had nothing to offer. They had no physical wellness that they could work for their good or for their pay. So all they could do is stick their hands out of the shadows and beg somebody to put something there. And if somebody didn't put something there, they had nothing. That's what tokos means. A crouching beggar hiding in the shadows with only empty hands extended to receive what is given. Cannot work, cannot earn their own keep. They can only receive. And the first step, the first statement about the kingdom of heaven is that it belongs to those who are poor, who have nothing in their hands to offer. But it's not material poverty that he's speaking of. Blessed are the poor in spirit. If you are born again, you brought nothing. Nothing! Into that salvation. Nothing. You did not get to a certain place where you figured out spiritual truths and then you started to apply those truths and worked yourself toward an understanding of God so that He could possibly look at you and say, yeah, you've got it figured out, okay, come on, do the rest of the work and come on to me. That's not how salvation works. That's not how the kingdom of heaven works. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. The man that struts into God's presence and starts telling him why he should save him is the guy that is doomed to hell. The guy that sticks his hands out and says, if you don't give it, I don't have it. I don't have it in me. We were dead in our sins and our transgressions. And God gave life. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They know this. They know that they did nothing to earn or deserve this. They were simply crouching, cowering beggars. You say, well, they were begging. With nothing. Knowing that if they didn't receive it, they would never have anything. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who do not work for their salvation. Blessed are those who do not try to earn God's favor. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now is. Again, keep that present tense in mind. We're going to see it again in verse 10. All the other ones are shall. This one is is. Listen, only empty vessels can be filled. You say, well, no, you can put stuff in them. But it's mixture, it's alloy, it's not pure. We're going to get to pure in a little bit. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out that we must be emptied to be filled. We must be pulled down to be raised up. We must fall to rise again. And we must be convicted to be converted. And Jesus says from the outset of His discourse, blessed are those who have nothing. Because when you have nothing, then you can receive what? Everything. 
You can receive the kingdom of heaven. Now, can you imagine having nothing and then being given the kingdom of heaven? That might make you happy. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Scripture says He's the lifter of our heads. What a picture of salvation. Me cowering in the shadows with my hands out and He grabs my hands, grabs my head, pulls me to Himself and He says, I've given you all things. And if I bring anything into this relationship of my own, I'm going to ruin it. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now again, you're listening about this kingdom and the first thing you hear is you've got to be poor in spirit. The second thing you hear is that you've got to mourn. Blessed, happy, to be envied and congratulated are those who mourn. Well, what are they mourning about? They're just sad folk. Nine words for mourn in the Greek and this is the strongest of them. The poor in spirit receive the kingdom. Have you ever been overwhelmed at your unworthiness of something? Somebody gift you something, somebody give you something, somebody lay down their life for you, somebody share something with you, and you're like, oh man, I I don't deserve that. Right. And so you see your self in the midst of the gift that you've received, you see yourself in the midst of this grace that's been lavished on you, oh, we're going to celebrate, yeah, but we're going to mourn too. I've been given everything. I've been given holiness. I've been given the very presence of God. And what happens when I get in the light of God's holiness? What do you think I see real quick? I see my sinfulness. I see... Compared to purity and holiness, there's a whole lot of sin on me, in me. And the mourning here reflects an acknowledgement of our sinfulness. And so I mourn over my sin when I see it contrasted with the perfect, wonderful blessing of the kingdom of heaven. How would you respond if you had nothing and were given everything? Christmas is coming, right? Some of you are going to get gifts that you're like, oh man, you spent way too much money on this. And again, there's a blessing in it, but there's still this guilt almost. Let me tell you what, God's not saying blessed are the guilty. There's no more guilt, there's no more condemnation now. But there is an acknowledgement of my sinfulness. And that makes me mourn. Mourning knowing that what I have received is so far beyond my ability to obtain and to maintain. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you think, I don't know, I'm all right, I'm good. (laughs) Isaiah felt that way maybe. 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Good to be here. This is nice. I like this. This makes me happy. And I said, Whoa, it's me. For I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's mourning. I had nothing. I was given everything as a free gift. And then I look at myself and I go, woe is me. I don't deserve this. I didn't earn this. And I surely can't maintain this. Because I know me. I know my heart. I know my mind. I know my actions. And they're not holy. And I love what Isaiah says here. It's not just his sin. I'm lost for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. If you cannot look around and see the prevalence of sin in our day and time and mourn, you do not know the holiness of God. Turn on a TV and watch it for 30 minutes. Or better yet, don't. Turn on a radio and listen for 30 minutes. Get on the internet and surf real quick. We live among a people of unclean lips. And if the presence of sin in our world does not cause us to mourn, we don't know what sin is. And we sure don't know what holiness is. And Jesus says, blessed is the man who mourns. Blessed is the woman who mourns. Because they see the condition of themselves and the world around them and it breaks their heart. And that's true blessing. That's true happiness. When I can see my sin and the sin of others and how it is an affront to the holiness of God. And I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the kingdom of heaven. That's something to mourn about. i got to hurry. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. The meek? Meek? Jesus. Rome. Military juggernaut. Meekness is not going to get it done. Meekness is not going to set up the kingdom. And Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word for meek is praus, P-R-A-U-S, and it means controlled strength. Jesus was meek. He wasn't weak. We can convey meekness as weakness, and meekness is not weakness. Meekness is a war horse who, who allows itself to be ridden by somebody. Meekness is a raging river harnessed to generate power. Dangerous in and of itself, but useful. And not just useful, but gloriously useful. Blessed are those who are meek, 
who have the very power of God in them but don't elevate themselves over, over others. You know, ugh, have you ever heard these people say, well, you better venerate the man of God because he might call down bears if you call him bald or something. But you see these men of God who say, you better venerate me because I'm a man of God. Huh, that's not meekness. Meekness is I have the very presence and power of God in my life and I'm going to use it for the good of others. It's controlled strength. And what do they get? They shall inherit the earth. You think if you had the earth, you might be happy? When you walk in meekness, you get the earth. This, uh, uh, this is an echo from Psalm 37, 10 through 11. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land. And delight themselves in abundant peace. Not just the land of Israel, not just Jerusalem, but the earth is what Jesus says. And when you've been emptied of yourself and seen your poverty of spirit and you've been given all things and you mourn over your sin, you're going to be way more understanding with your position in life than you were before. And you're going to be meek. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Ever been hungry? Somebody's like, it's about that time. (laughs) Ever been thirsty? Ever been just parched? What are those desires like? The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, come to a place where they hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's not just physical hunger. It's it's not physical hunger. It's not physical thirst. It's It's a hunger and a thirst, a desire, a primal, basic desire for what? For righteousness. And what did we spend two and a half years in Romans seeing? Righteousness is a gift of God. Right standing with God, given as a free gift. You're like, well, do I need to hunger and thirst for that? Yeah. And you also need to hunger and thirst for a life that is righteous, that shows righteous deeds, not just a righteous standing that you've received from God, but righteous deeds that you live out in the presence of men. Righteousness is right standing with God and right living before man. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for that righteousness. You say, well, how can I hunger and thirst for something I have received? You buy groceries, don't you? You receive them and they're yours, and you need to remember what's in the cabinet when you need it. Are you hungry to know and to show that you've been accepted by God? Is it an unquenchable thirst outside of the very presence of God that I want to know that I'm right with God and I want to show that I'm right with God as I live out with other people? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and you realize that you have received mercy, you cannot not show mercy. If you're walking in the free gift of righteousness and you're walking in a way that show your righteous deeds before men, they're going to be merciful deeds. What is mercy? Justice is when you get what you deserve. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. Oh, that marriages were based on mercy. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. You deserve punishment. You deserve the silent treatment. You deserve to be banished but I'm going to give you mercy. 
Blessed are the merciful. Why? Because they're going to receive mercy. Mercy produces mercy, produces mercy. I've received mercy from God and grace. So I've got that mercy, so I show mercy to other people. And when I show mercy to other people and I'm merciful to other people, guess what I get? I get mercy. Who doesn't want to walk in a mercy cycle? I'd love to work in a mercy cycle. Walk in a mercy cycle. Receiving mercy, giving mercy, receiving mercy, giving mercy, receiving mercy, giving mercy. Blessed are the merciful. Because they're going to receive mercy. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure means guiltless. Pure means unalloyed. It's just 100% pure something. We were talking the other day about maple syrup. And like sometimes in, if it's not 100% pure maple syrup, they put something else in it. But they call it maple syrup, even though it's got something else in it. It's got to be the 100% pure maple syrup that's real maple syrup. Because there's nothing else in it except maple syrup. And here, blessed are the pure in heart, the unalloyed in heart, whose heart is given completely to the gracious gift, the gracious love, the gracious presence of God, receiving mercy, giving mercy, receiving mercy, giving mercy. And all of a sudden, everything around you takes on a purity to it, even in the midst of all this sin. And you're going, wow, because what's going on? Blessed are the pure in heart. And again, the heart is the inner man, which shows that this kingdom that Jesus is talking about is a kingdom of the heart. One day it will be a physical kingdom. But blessed are the pure in heart whose hearts are completely given to God and God alone. For they shall see God. Now, what does that mean, to see God? I think it means we will one day see God. Scripture says that plainly. 1 John 3, 23. Well, let me, let me back up first. Let's talk about the heart for a minute. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But in this kingdom that Jesus is establishing, even our deceitful, wicked, sick hearts can be pure. That's good news. Does that mean that I'm going to be pure in heart all the time? I don't think I will, but man, I want it. As I hunger and thirst for righteousness, as I show mercy, my heart gets purified. Even this deceitful, desperately sick heart. Pure in heart shall see God. 1 John 3, 2-3 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. That's a pretty good promise, right? We shall see Him as He is. That's what happens with the pure in heart. But I don't think it just means one day we'll see Him. I think we start to see God in our situation, in our circumstances. And even in this sinful world around us, we start to see God. Well, that was God did that. We start to see God in our suffering. God's in that. We start to see God in the flat tire and the dead battery. And we understand that this is not just happenstance. And the sovereignty of God becomes a soft pillow that we lay our head on every night because we know that God is in control of all things. Because we've seen Him. We've seen Him orchestrate our situation even when it seemed hopeless and helpless and we're going, God's still in control. So you start to see God because your heart is pure. That's what Jesus is saying. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peace is not the absence of conflict. 
Peace is making wrong things right, partial things whole. And blessed are the peacemakers. Man, I don't know about you guys. Well, let me not say it that way. I know there have been times in my life when I just kind of existed to create conflict. Facebook wars, right? I'll tell them, boy, they're wrong. I'll tell them why they're wrong. I'll tell them everything about them that's wrong. I'll tell them their mama's ugly. I'll tell them everything. You know, I'm going to let them have it here on the Facebooks, right? There's just some people who exist to create conflict. And I have been one of those people. But in the kingdom of heaven, it's the peacemakers who are highlighted, who are satisfied, who are to be envied. For they shall be called sons of God. You want to know who the greatest peacemaker of all time was? A man by the name of Jesus Christ who was the Son of God. And what did He do? He came to bring peace between an angry God and the rebel faction that was the human race that was warring against God. And Jesus came and made peace between God and man. And when we walk in His kingdom, guess what we do? We seek to see people at peace with God who are by nature enemies of God for their sake and for the glory of God. We're not just trying to make everybody get along and be happy, but we're looking to see true fellowship between God and man. Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? For they shall be called the sons of God. But peace always comes with a price, right? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You want to be blessed? You want to be happy? Get yourself persecuted. No, that's not what it says. It says you are blessed and happy when you are persecuted. For I'm getting a phone call on all my devices right now. So. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, these people who stir up strife and conflict, a lot of times they've got this attitude... Poor me, I'm just a victim and everybody's jumping on me. The persecuted person here is the one who has been working to make peace, working to show mercy, who has received everything from God as a gift, and the world hates them. Why do they hate them? Not just to persecute them, they're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Let me start, let me let me tell you. When you start walking righteously in the presence of the world, the world will hate you. Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you because you're righteous. And they love the darkness. So they don't want to have their evil deeds exposed. So as you start to walk righteously, they're going to start slandering you, which is the next verse. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, he says, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. Now again, this is just a continuation of that same beatitude. And note that as they hurl these accusations, as they say these things, they're saying false things about you on Jesus' account. This is not people talking bad about you. Jesus isn't saying, blessed are you when people talk about you behind your back. Blessed are you when people bump their gums about you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying when they spread lies about you because you're righteous and they do it because they hate Jesus. That's when you're truly blessed. 
So you've got eight qualities that we see. And you've got eight responsibilities that these things constitute. And then you've got eight blessings, which are the privileges of these things. John Stott said, this is what the enjoyment of God's rule means. That's a whole lot of stuff, and we don't have time for everything. Most, most people that I read, listen to, all that kind of stuff, they spent a message per beatitude, which is what I really would have wanted to have done, but we don't have time for that. We want to see the forest, not just the trees. Let's run back through these, and then I want to set them up in a frame of what it looks like to see these qualities and the blessings that come from them in the frame of what we saw last week. And what we saw last week were four points. We saw true repentance, true righteousness, living differently, and Jesus. I really got to come up with four better things than those, but, but that's what we got. True repentance, true righteousness, living differently, and Jesus. So what do we see? Blessed are the... What was first? Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the quality. And what do they get? They get the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And at the end of it, he says, of all these things, of poverty, of mourning, of mercy, of persecution, he says, of all these things to rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. There's the coming kingdom. I can know it in part now. I can operate in part now in this kingdom knowing that the final kingdom is coming. Babies and little kids do what they want when they want because I want it now. Grown-ups delay gratification. So I'll suffer persecution and walk in joy of persecution even now knowing that the final fulfillment is coming and it's worth waiting for. So how do we frame this up? True repentance, true righteousness, living differently and in light of Jesus. Now, let me ask you this. True repentance. If you can read this and not see it as true blessing, you've got to change the way you think. Because we read it and we say, well, it's not blessing to be poor. It's not blessing to mourn. It's not blessing to be persecuted. And Jesus says it is. So that means we've got to change the way I think. I mean, really, read through those again sometime and think, is this really what I want? And if it's not what you really want, you've got to change the way you think. Jesus, I want to be poor in spirit. Father, help me to mourn. Father, help me to see this persecution as blessing from you. And if you're not there, you've got to change the way you think. And you've got to be changed by the Word which leads us to true righteousness. Listen, if you live this out, that's true righteousness. Are you ever going to do it perfectly? No. Nobody's asking you to do it perfectly. But do you know that you have received the gift of righteousness from God Himself so that you can go out and do righteous deeds in His power? And are you looking to Him for your righteousness and for that power to do those righteous deeds? 
Listen to me. This has to be Holy Spirit empowered or it does not happen. Your righteous deeds are like filthy rags if they're just yours. But if they're empowered by the Holy Spirit, those are the things that make our deeds righteous. Those are the things that we'll receive reward for up the road somewhere. And so, obviously, if we're thinking different, if we're acting different, we're going to live differently. Now let me ask you, this is the main thrust of the question I want to ask you this morning. How different would your life look if you walked in what is being taught here? How much more would you absorb and not make about yourself? What if you mourned over your sin? Man, I hear a lot of laughter in the church today. What if your life was different and you were mourning over your sin? There's blessing in that. What if you were a peacemaker? Not one who condemned or berated others. What if your life was about loving God and others and not making much of yourself? I think your life would look a little different. I think my life would look a lot different. And I think people would see, there's something different here. You live different than me. Let me tell you about my Savior. Because I had nothing and He gave me all things. Well, you're a good man. No, I'm a sinner. And Jesus does some good things through me from time to time. How different would you live? 